Growth Pains. Hey, hi everyone, Nacho here. Welcome to the first episode of Growth Pains. Uh, the goal of this podcast, to be honest, is first of all that there seems to be a growing number of people out there that are feeling like they're not good at their work. This is very much the case in tech startups, obviously, which is my world. Uh, but yeah, I think it's similar in all kinds of businesses of all kinds of sizes. So my goal here is to show uh, everyone that's struggling that we all struggle, that we all screw up, and that the process is always a bit dirty, it's not that easy, and that you don't have to feel bad about that. Secondly, I do think that we can learn more from struggles than from post-rationalized success stories. Uh, so hopefully digging into these pains will also leave you with some valuable learnings uh, that you can put into practice. Uh, this is not about failures. I don't want to glorify failures. I don't want to like go in that direction, but this is about the struggles along the way. You could end up in a success or a failure. That doesn't really matter, but the only thing that's kind of certain is that there will be some pains along the way, right? So uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce my first guest. I'm not really sure he needs an introduction. He's the founder and former CEO of Moz, the author of one of my favorite books in business, Lost and Founder, and he's now the co-founder and CEO of Spark Toro. So it's Mr. Rand Fishkin. How are you, Rand? Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nacho. Doing, uh, yeah, doing okay. Things are, you know, crazy. Yeah. Okay, it's a little bit of what you can go for these days, right? I, I don't think there's nothing wrong about that. I mean, I guess this podcast comes in an appropriate time as well for what we're all going through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I we launched a new startup uh, two months and three days ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, that has been an exciting journey. <laughs> this morning, uh, our, our app is down for the first time. Ever and we're not sure if that's because last <laughs> night I put up a uh, a blog post about racial injustice and Black Lives Matter. I read it. Yeah, I read it this morning. Yeah, we might have. I, I we're not sure yet. We're investigating the cause, but we think we might have experienced a DDoS sort of attack on our app. Um, oh wow! So it's <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a heck of a day. Heck of a day. All right, I'm not gonna go into that topic either because I don't want people to start hacking my podcast or, or right. zoom bombing oh, us or zoom bombing us. But I wanted to kick it off with something that I think I might ask also all of the guests in this podcast. I'm just working with the structure so far. But the first thing would be to talk about one thing or a few things that you think that you're really, really bad at when it comes to your working life. And uh, I have a bunch of, but I guess you have some yeah. too. Yeah. Oh man. I have, I have so, so many. I think one of the biggest ones for certain is I really um, despise and am not good at and don't even really understand the psychology and politics of larger, larger organizations. So once right. a company, once my last company, Moz, got above... 50, 60 people and teams and, and sort of tribalism started forming inside the organization. Um, that really brought me a tremendous amount of emotional pain. Like, and, and um, it was the kind of problem that you could not solve with good ideas um, and hard work. And that, um, yeah, it tore at me. Right. I think I think that was one of the things that that led, frankly, to the depression that I wrote about in Lost and Founder and to a lot of the unhappiness that I had in the later stages of the company. I think it's right. almost certainly responsible for why I stepped down as CEO. So, yeah, I. Yeah, well, big companies. Sorry, yeah, one of the main things you mentioned also right in the, in the book that I thought was really interesting because I, I've certainly been in kind of like in a similar position is that 
as Moss started scaling, project management was a big pain for you. Uh, so yeah. this is not only the people part, but also like trying to keep everybody in the loop of what everybody's working on. Um, how do you think you're going to deal with that when the time comes for SparkToro to do the same? Or are you trying to keep it lean towards the end? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah three, three people forever kind of thing. I mean, this is, this is one of the things, <laughs> Nacho, I think this is one of the keys that many, many founders, many business owners, executives, even, even folks inside companies and teams don't realize that they have the option to not just encounter problems and work through them, but basically just avoid them entirely, right? You can yep. just say, hey, we're not good at finance, whatever. I hate dealing with accounting and bookkeeping. You know what? I'm just gonna hire an outside accountant to handle all of that forever, and I don't care if it's more expensive. I just don't wanna manage it in-house. I don't wanna have that on my plate. Uh, and I'm gonna build a business that only accepts one kind of payment, and I'm gonna only uh, do you know one price point whatever right like just to make everything yeah, yeah. super simple you can work around these problems the way to work around the people issue that i have is basically casey and i don't ever want to build a company of more than 50 people so yeah. we are gonna you know whatever whatever sorts of financial sizes customer serving sizes we can get to awesome but in terms of yeah, people yeah. in the organization we want to keep it very lean and so far it's just the two of us and we use a lot of contractors yeah, yeah, well, it makes sense, right? I mean, uh, from what you were explaining in the book, that's definitely the smartest way to approach this, especially because you're in a different stage of life. You're not getting like VC backing and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So it makes sense. I wanted to also add like a little bit of a section here that it might become cool or it might become a horrendous failure, but I'm going to give it a try, which is a little bit of a true or false kind of game here. So I'll give you a, couple, a few statements. I think it's going to be like five or six. And as we go, you're going to let me know whether they're true or false. You can call it word or bullshit or something cooler <laughs> or whatever you want to go with. I love it. But um, yeah, so let me start with the first one. I think I know what you're going to answer, but I might get surprised on this one. Okay. Um, with the massive success of Moss, Rand, Rand could be chilling in his Seattle penthouse right now, swimming in a pool of gold coins if he wanted to. He's just lost the grind and that's why he's launching SparkToro. Oh, that's super false. false. Incredibly false. <laughs> yeah, uh, so just to be clear, I... Um, I think my total earnings ever out of Moz were about a million dollars and all salary, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, oh, actually, I'm sorry. My wife and I did sell, we sold some stock uh, okay. to one of the investors um, and used that money to pay off my grandparents' house in uh, New Jersey, which- um, That's cool, man. Yeah, but we do not have that kind of money, no. I, I had to raise money for SparkToro because yeah, we didn't have the money to start it ourselves. Yeah, you get that a lot, don't you? I do. I, the problem, you know what the problem is, Nacho? The problem is Google. Because if you Google, yeah, if yeah, you start yeah. typing Rand Fishkin, they suggest Rand Fishkin net worth. And if you yeah. hit, if you search for Rand Fishkin net worth, Google gives you a totally wrong answer, right? That's like way out of bounds. Oh I man, to, I should have Googled that one before. I, I, you know what I should do? I should write my own <laughs> blog post that's like Rand Fishkin net worth and then just lay it out there. <laughs> All right, all right, let's go with the second one. Um, if you would be happiest building a strong, stable business that's profitable, that makes you wealthy and happy, giving you a great work-life balance at the same time, raising venture capital is a shit idea. 100% <laughs> true. <laughs> Can you elaborate about it? What's your experience on that one? Yeah, well, I, so venture, right? Um, Venture investment requires a very high multiple of return from a very small number of companies in the portfolio, 
right? So right. the model is essentially, hey, we're going to, you know, we'll raise a $300 million fund. We'll invest in 300-ish startups. We expect 290 of those to uh, fail or flame out or be sold for parts, be unsuccessful, yeah. go bankrupt. And we expect uh, 10, maybe maybe two or three of those 10 to be billion dollar plus IPOs. And, you know, seven or eight of those 10 to be multi-hundred million dollar exits. And that'll make up for the rest of the portfolio, right? And so then yeah. we get our three to five X return on the 300 million by, by having those 10 companies do it. So when you sign up for venture, the odds are suddenly stacked so far against you surviving a long time, having a successful business, right? A business that has an exit that is um, financially good for you, your co-founders, your employees and team. Uh, pretty unlikely that your product will keep serving your customers well for a long period of time, right? Absolutely. Like, just, everybody's going to fail except for kind of the investment class that's put the money in because they don't care about you failing well like they care right but they they only care one three hundredth right you're just one of yeah, many yeah. bets and uh their hope is just that a few turn into the big ones uh if you're not it yeah you're not yeah you're not interested. i mean actually your book has one of the best explanations i think on the topic i i, I when you read it through you put it kind of in apples and oranges and it becomes really clear you know in a, in a world that it's over you know, full with buzzwords and things kind of to like make you not really understand what's going on. Uh, totally. Kind of like to just use these crazy terminologies, you know, like insurances and all these kinds of stuff when you have these terms that are like logarithmic equations to calculate what the insurance oh, is going to cover mean, or not just to drive you crazy. Uh, in right? BC, so, right? It's, it's liquidation <laughs> preference. Yeah. Right? I don't think anybody really has a good understanding of the fact that, for example, my wife worked at a company. Uh, she got yeah. stock in that company, you know, it was here in Seattle as a startup. Uh, they they sold for a hundred million dollars and uh, maybe ninety million something like that and I think they had raised thirty five or thirty six million but there was a two x liquidation preference from the investors so the first seventy five million dollars of the buyout went to the VCs right and then yeah. everybody else got to split whatever the leftover twelve or thirteen which was basically uh, the founders, uh, the bank, because they they had a debt right that they owed, and um, I think the employees' stock was essentially worthless at the end. Oh, oops! Wow. All right, man. Next one. Let's see. Let's see. This one, I think it's. Uh, I hope you answer what I think you're gonna answer, but let me see. It's a little bit from your book, but maybe you don't remember anymore. So most marketers strive to move people down their funnel as quickly as possible, from reading a piece of content to buying. The shorter, the better. But sometimes increasing that time can pay off in the long term. True or false? Totally true. Yeah, absolutely yeah. true. The, the reason is basically that um, I've seen this at, at Moz and I've seen it at plenty of other SaaS and, and subscription businesses that I've um, helped and been parts of, which is that folks who are more in your world, right, who know you, like yeah. you, trust you more, they tend to be better long-term customers. And one of the best ways to do that is to, before someone buys, build up a rapport with them, right? Build up your brand, make them yep. a fan. Uh, and, and then when they do convert, they're much more likely to be a subscriber or a contributor, a buyer, a repeat buyer again and again, as opposed to the sort of, 
I need this thing. I come to your homepage. I convert. Yeah. You did a great job converting me. Now I'm done. I'm out of here. I don't know who no, you absolutely. are. I don't care. All right. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's really interesting. It's a really tough internal sell, I guess, especially for, for people that are starting out, right? I mean, you're going to just say to your CEO, to your boss, you're going to say, hey, I just want to drive people slower down the funnel so they fall in love with my content. Yeah, good luck with that I one. Mean, I but think, I, I, I think absolutely nice, see the value. What's nice is I think you can you can play it a little bit both ways, right? So you don't have to convince your boss, hey, I want to slow things down. What you can say is, yeah. hey, I think we need to also invest in building up an email list of fans and subscribers. I think we also need to invest in whatever it is, content or um, of whatever type, right? A, a blog or yeah. a podcast or a video series or uh, episodic content of some kind. I think we also need to you know, build our profile in the industry and be at events. I think we write all this sort of community stuff to build up that brand. And that investment is the long-term one. And then the, the landing pages and the conversion rate optimization, that's the short term. No, I got it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is one that I, I'm curious about what you're going to answer. Okay, let's go. So the other one is the hardest struggle of growing a business are people related and not about technical skills. True or false? And you have to pick true or false. You cannot tell me 50-50, 70-30 or something like that. I, I think it's true. I think yeah. it's true. I think, I think that reasonable people could disagree, but in my opinion, the people challenge is far more overwhelming than the the business's technical challenge. Um, I think you could maybe argue that the very first version of whatever you're building, you know, maybe that people are less the challenge there before you launch. But yeah. once you're building the business, people are absolutely the hardest part. Yeah, perfect. The other one, and uh, we have a couple to go. I'm going to go th quickly through them. The most successful startup founders like yourself are self-made, highly intelligent people that created something out of nothing, changing the world. Most reach success before they turn 30. True or false? <laughs> You've never said anything more incorrect. <laughs> Your whole life, But Nacho. you know this is what people think, right? You know this is what people think, a lot of them. <laughs> That's the most false thing you've ever said. I basically, being 36, already failed in life uh, like six years ago. I haven't done shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. How do you feel about that one? Well, so, okay. So the, the, what's nice is there are a lot of great stats out there um, from a number of institutes and educational organizations and venture firms, right, that have studied kind of what, what are the patterns. And patterns are, in fact, that uh, no, most people who start companies are not self-made. They are, in fact, uh, almost always funded by family wealth. And I don't want to say yeah. like their families put money into their businesses. What I mean is they don't, they have a place to fall back on. They can go if things don't work out, you know, po after their schooling or, or, you know, in their adult life, they have a, a family and a home to go back to that is safe for them and they'll get food fed and they'll, you know, be totally fine if they need to, right? So that that's sort of yeah. wealth, that is um, a prerequisite. And and in most cases, most founders are an, already come from wealthy families, right? Yeah. And a lot of that is like, you look at the stats, right? It's a lot of like Ivy League schools and, um, you know, brand name schools. Those places cost an incredible amount of money to go to, right? So the they're restricting who can go to these schools by family wealth already. Um, yeah. And then uh, in addition to that, most of the founders who are successful and most founders in general are between the ages of 40 and 65, right? I yes. Think he, yes. Yeah. I, guess I still have some time. 
in, in technology. <laughs> Never mind, the, right? The rest of the yeah, economy, yeah, yeah. this is also true. In fact, yeah, the, yeah. The, the largest group of um, founders of new businesses in the United States are women over the age of 40. Right? Wow. Yeah, because that that is who tends to start businesses on average. We just don't see it reflected in the media and the you know TV shows and the movies and the TechCrunch articles uh, that we consume, but that is where new businesses are actually happening. The other thing I don't think anybody knows is that uh, new businesses, new business creation is at a 50-year low in the oh, United well. States. So we are we are in the worst sort of startup dearth that we have been in in a generation, two generations. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Well, yeah, obviously you, you think that every, you lift a rock and a new startup comes out, right? But, right. And, and you hear them all the time, but it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, the other one, and this one didn't come from me, so don't get mad at me. It's, uh, it's crowdsourced. Uh, so <laughs> like, uh, don't get like, most, <laughs> like most, don't, don't just leave me hanging in here. So like most, you made a lot of shitty decisions when you were the CEO at Moss. Oh yeah, absolutely true, undeniably true. Many shitty decisions. I think, um, you know, ones I, I seriously regret. I seriously regret uh, taking our focus off of SEO in 2012, 2013. I think that was a, a terrible idea to try and expand. We hadn't yet really solved the, the SEO market problem with our product um, and we had you know, just a, a tremendous amount more that we should and could be doing. I think I did a bad job um, building up the engineering strength uh, and discipline in, inside Moz's organization. I would I would go back and do that entirely differently. Um, I don't think we put nearly enough focus into UI, UX, and design that we should have. And I would I would do yeah. that again. Uh, I would change that up. I also wouldn't have hired nearly as many people. I think I got obsessed with having a big team because then I would look big and important and fancy. Yeah, but let's face it, it was also what the VC wanted for your for your Series B and so on, right? Like that's also the market pressure to get more people in. It's it's a sign of growth at the end of the day for the market. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I, look, I'm not going to discount the fact that I was biased by the world that I was living in, right? The, the ocean that I'm, I was swimming yeah. in was VC backed, you know, try and raise a bigger round, try and become a unicorn, all that stuff. But um, yeah, but I don't. I don't think that's an excuse for not paying attention to what was really going on. And the the job of the CEO and founder is don't get biased by, you know, the world around you. And and I really did. Um, I also regret. I, I wrote about this as well on the on the blog. I regret stepping down as CEO. I don't think that was the right move. Um, yeah, yeah. So a lot of yeah. Things. Well, it's it's all easy in hindsight, right? Like right. It's, uh, this is why I, I, I think, you know, when most of the content we hear out there when somebody says, yeah, we always knew this was a great idea and we were going to be successful. Like in hindsight, you can make anything sound amazing, right? You, yeah. you could have easily taken that road instead of writing a book, you, you, you wrote taking like essentially a massive shit all over yourself and just <laughs> like being really vulnerable, right? You could have easily just said, well, I planned it all along. Right, it was always my intention to do it this way, and yeah, and yeah everybody would have would have eat it, right? Like I think sure. that's, that's I, this is, my point. I think I think those make for such um, misleading tales. And and what's what's interesting, Nacho, is I, I'm sure you've had this experience too, right? You if you go to whatever coffee shop or bar and you sit down with yeah. you know your friend who's a founder and you get the real story, it is never 
It is never oh, what is portrayed, right? It is never it's what's in the, in the media. And I never wanted that to happen, right? I wanted people to be able to read Lost and Founder or to look at the story of Moz and be like, oh, shit, that guy actually told it how yeah. it is. I can't well, believe but, it. Uh, before we go into the last one, but like marketing events, right, are, are the pinnacle of this, right? It's a, it's a full of people that know how to market themselves and also besides their business, right? So sure. everybody's doing freaking amazing when you're talking about it. And all of a sudden, like three of them are bankrupting in three weeks. Uh, I've never been in a meeting with marketers where I've said like, how are you guys doing? No, nah, man, we're struggling. We're doing really badly. Everybody's doing amazing. Everybody's growing fantastically. And this is why you, your book is so refreshing. And mostly what you've done in the last 20 years is so refreshing. But to wrap it up with the true and false, and I think this relates to what we're speaking about is that this is the last statement. Vulnerability equals weakness. True or false? False. False. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I think that being vulnerable is culturally ingrained, especially in men, um, especially in the United States. I don't know what it's like in, in the Netherlands. No, absolutely. Latin men. Well, I, I wasn't grew up here in the Netherlands, but Latin men, of course, never cry. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. So, right. So I think the Americas throughout the Americas, right, that, that there's this this yeah. culture of whatever manliness and, and, and macho-ness and needing yeah, to be yeah. needing to project strength. And um, and in fact, those that is weakness. That is yeah. what will tear you down. That is that is what you know popular culture calls toxic masculinity but but in fact is just it's just this infection this cultural infection that we have that make us think that we're not allowed to show our emotions that we're not allowed to talk about tough subjects that we're not allowed to express yeah. when we're having a hard time and what does it do it just it just creates generational intergenerational damage right our our parents whatever our fathers are shitty to us and then we think we have to be shitty to our sons and they're yeah. shitty to their sons and what do you get from it right you get yeah the worst no. of humanity and and we we can end that right we have the choice we get to decide yeah. whether we are ready to be emotional and vulnerable and make those hard decisions to be you know um different kinds of men and that yeah. I, I think that's a beautiful thing right that that freedom yeah, is yeah. ours I mean, what blows my mind is that I think you wrote this book five years ago, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, yeah. but, um, huh. and I don't really, I thought it was going to start some sort of a thing, right? I thought when I read it the first time, I thought like, wow, this is going to start something. People will start being uh, a bit more open about these things. And all of a sudden, then nothing happened, right? Like everything kept being the same thing. We came back to like showing off and we came back to the usual, like nobody went on a honesty spree and just started like throwing it all out, right? Like, and one of the headlines you have in the book that I think really stuck with me is you say, if people have, if people have to cry in the bathroom, you're fucking up, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and I love that one. I think it's, it's really true. Um, but what's also, yeah, what's also interesting is that this time we're in right now, this is particularly important, right? Because most people are being faced with like, well, dude, um, it's tough times. Either you cost some tooling or you let go some people sort of thing. Right, most of people are in that, and some managers. I'm, I'm very much like you. I'm very much like into the people side of, of a business, uh, and then you doubt yourself, wondering like, does this make me weak? Right, right. because I, I, there's people that were willing to pull the trigger on somebody like this. They'll be like, okay, yeah, I'll just get rid of these three people, and then I'm good with my math. And you'll be like, okay, I don't feel like I can do that. Shit, does that make me really weak? 
Yeah, you yeah. know, and sometimes I guess in some situations it puts you in a hard st- in a hard spot, right? But I, I think I think that that element of you know keeping people, letting people go, having those hard conversations. I think that's one of the the toughest places yeah. to get to, right? You you need a, a sort of level of um, emotional maturity and long term vision on that stuff that is really hard to do. So I I at Moz I was um, terrible about letting people go. Like I just, you know, I I felt awful about it. Anytime I had to do it, I, it was terrible. It was always like this long drawn out process. And very frankly, right. I've completely gone 180. Now I've seen tons of people, you know, join the company and then leave the company. And even though they're pissed at you, you know, the day that they're fired, six months later, they're almost always better off. They're often making more money at some new job and they're happier there. And like they fit in better there and it's yeah. a journey, right? It, the, our professional careers in in high tech, you know, information economy stuff. It is it is a journey, and there's no. Absolutely. I don't, I don't feel that shame anymore, uh, letting someone go. But I think that takes a, a lot to get to, right? It it, it yeah. really does. Yeah, yeah. And so, 100%. yeah, it's um, it's just a question of like getting. I think having that experience a few times, and then being ready to say, hey, if it's not working out, sometimes. Sometimes the story that I want to tell isn't the story that they want to read, right? Yeah. Isn't the story no, that they no. want to be part of. And that, that's okay. That's not my fault. That's not their fault. Let's forgive each other and move on. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the interesting things in, in the book, well, I mean, generally in, in the interviews you do is that you've been very vocal about the impact that working in startups and tech can have on a person's mental health. Yeah. Uh, and I personally feel... I don't know what's your opinion being 20 years in, in the U.S. doing this and so on, but I personally feel it's been getting a bit worse. Uh, before, we had social media mostly in like the hobby part of our life, right? Like so people would be, hey, I'm doing a barbecue here, I'm doing the other thing. Now social media is also a big part of our work life and we have people like bragging about their jobs and what they're doing and then making a lot of people feel like crap about that. Um, I mean, if there's anything that's exponentially growing now is burnouts and imposter syndrome issues, yeah. right? Like if you want to talk exponential growth, there's one for you. Uh, and uh, yeah, and so one of the things that I wonder is that even after you've had all of this success, and I think this is really interesting for people listening, like do you still feel like you scroll down your feed and you go like, holy shit, I must be doing something wrong here because all of these people are doing so great. Like, do you still get that feeling even though you're now a very accomplished dude and, and yeah, in a different stage of your life? How do you feel about that? Um, I've, I felt that way. I think, Nacho, if you had asked me that three years ago, four years ago, I would have said, yeah, absolutely. Still. I feel I feel bad yeah. about what I've done and what I've built and why. Um, but today... I don't, I don't know how I got here, but no, I think the answer is no, I don't feel that way. Yeah. I don't feel jealous good, of, um, but, but, no, let me rephrase that. I, I would love to have more money, right? I think that, that there's <laughs> a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people I would love to help. There's a lot of things I would love to be able to do. Um, yeah. there's a lot of, uh, yeah. There's a lot of causes that deserve a lot of money right now, and I feel bad that I can't do more things more powerfully to to help on the financial side. That being said, it is also a huge burden lifted to be someone who's like, yeah, you know, my assets are like maybe $400,000, so yeah. I can't do that much, right? So I have to focus on what I'm I can do, shabby. and having that 
having that limitation in some ways is a good thing, right? And I feel the the scrappiness and the struggle of like, okay, I got to make SparkToro work, right? Every day I yeah. got to get up and like... Well, there's also a social pressure there, right? Because one of the things like you do have an advantage, like when you're launching a product to marketers, right? And you have already a big following, like that's obviously something that's that's beneficial and it's not free. Of course, you've earned it over 20 years of crazy blogging, like how many times I cannot even remember, right? But um, at the same time, yeah, that it, it's very important to to know that you also have a disadvantage, which is that people expect greatness from you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so when you launch something and you're very well known, you can look at it two ways. You can say, well, I have nothing to lose. I'm already set. I have my salary with Moss, my stock, whatever it is, I'm done. But at the other side, like people are going to give you so much more shit because you're supposed to always be successful, right? It's your brand. You always kill it when you do something. So it's a big risk. Right. Has that gotten to you a little bit more in the last, <laughs> in the last three or four months after a Spectral launch? Um, I think there's definitely. You know, there's definitely high expectations, and I yeah. I feel like this was one of the better products, maybe the best product I've ever put out. Um, I'm not sure if it's quite. I think that that now the challenge. What's interesting about the challenge with SparkToro is, I don't have the sense that the product isn't good enough. I have a sense that the education isn't good enough, right? And so that sort of sits on me, right? My job yeah. is to educate people about what SparkToro can do because it's. It's unfortunately or fortunately, it's it's in a sphere that people can't describe. Like Nacho, you, yeah, I'm sure you do this work. Your teams do this work, right? Oh man, absolutely. the work is I need to figure out all the sources uh, that my audience pays attention to, right? The podcasts they listen to, the video YouTube channels they watch, the the Twitter and social accounts that they follow, uh, the blogs they read, the websites they visit, the publications they pay attention to. I have to figure that stuff out. And then I can go do good kinds of marketing in all those places. But we don't have a name for that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like I asked, you know, I asked tons of people like you, right? I'd be yeah, like, yeah. hey, Nacho, what do you call that? And you, and most of most folks would say, I do that work, but I have no name for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, so, we're going to go back to that one more in depth after. But yeah, I know. But one, one of the interesting things as well, when you, when you mentioned the, the product, right, is because your products have been highly technical to an extent, right? So about crawling the entire internet and, and, and very mad scientist kind of stuff, <laughs> right? And the mustache put you in that direction right away when you were doing your whiteboard Fridays and all that sort of thing. <laughs> true, true. You know? Uh, and I mean, by the way, like people, I think people, a lot of people perceive you as a super technical marketer, mm. right? Because given the nature of your product, but in your book, you mentioned that you're not really that technical oh. and you mentioned also how much of a pain it was to have different CTOs that wouldn't just speak plain English to you. So you could just like get around to doing your job and making decisions and how much you struggled with not even understanding why you were failing right. because the product was so highly technical. So my question to you is if you had a do-over, right? We only have one brain, so you cannot do everything, right? So what percentage of the brain would you allocate to like technical knowledge and what percentage of the brain would you allocate to like people knowledge? Mm. How would you distribute your very limited, uh, the limited mental capacity that we all human have? Sure. I, I think I would... If I had it to do over again, I would invest more in the technical side and I would dodge the people problem, which is, which is what I'm doing with SparkToro, right? Yeah. Very, yeah. Right. Give, um, give me some numbers though. How much on each side? I think I'd probably, so right now, if I, you know, if I were to go back to the Moz days, I would say I was 80-20 uh, and I'd probably yeah. try and balance that at 40-60. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's super interesting because I see so many people, uh, especially with, you know, like the whole growth hacking movement and now product-led growth and all these buzz things that comes and come and go. <laughs> uh, so many people feel like a marketer, like every marketer should code in Python and that every marketer should uh, be a master in SQL. I have, I, have, I have some good data about this. So I don't, I don't know right. if you saw Nacho, but I've been running a survey to help aspiring marketers get I into did. the field. Yeah, and yeah. one of the questions, one of the questions I asked was, uh, what skills, you know, do you think are, have been most important to your career? What skills do you look for in new marketers? And the technical skills, coding, was mentioned by less than five percent. Ah, so that's it super is interesting. It it might feel to a lot of people like there's you know thought leaders and people on stages saying you need to be technical, you should code, all that kind of stuff, but in fact. The overwhelming majority of marketers say that, that those skill sets have not been hugely helpful to their careers and that they don't look for them in other marketers. Well, yeah, the, the very wrongly called soft side of marketing, right, branding and so yeah. on, is clearly making a comeback, right? We went oh, bananas huge. when we saw Google and we were like, we can measure everything now. And then we started measuring everything, going crazy. If you cannot measure it, it didn't happen. If I don't see that that people was attributed to this ad, then that doesn't happen and, and all this kind of madness. And we're kind of coming back to our senses and be like, dude, like this kind of stuff, creativity and like actual branding and all these softer things that, you know, any person could say, like any idiot can do that, but not really, uh, are making a comeback, right? Uh, right. We had like at this hard skill inflation for the last uh, 10, 20 years. And now I think we're coming back to our senses and, and starting to think again that these things are important. Yeah, yeah, so, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I think happened over the course of these 10, 15 years where things were immensely measurable, um, yeah. and now we're, now we're trending away from measurability, right? Because Google and Facebook are trying to hide all the stats and they're lobbying for, for privacy, which is ostensibly just only we're allowed to measure things, only yeah, we yeah. can show you the data, right? Um, and a lifelong, a lifelong uh, challenge for you uh, going against Google, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like my lifelong challenge is against monopoly power, right? Yeah. Like, I just don't like big companies, whatever, fucking with the system. <laughs> that, really, yeah, yeah. that really bothers me, right? And I no, think, I get I it, think that removes yeah. opportunity for all of us. Um, so that... Well, and that's cool because also everything that you discovered at some point when you were like geeking out in SEO at the very early days yeah. in your 20s, right? You put everything out there. Yeah. Like it's not like you uncovered everything to keep it to yourself. You put it all out there. It was no. all open, right? That was a huge part of your success as well. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think that's not only, uh, it was helpful to the business, but I think it was also the right thing to do, right? I, I think yeah. that that um, had a huge impact on a lot of people's lives. When I left Moz, right? The day I wrote that blog post, uh, almost two years ago now, right? Um, you know, my last day at Moz, my first day at SparkToro. And yeah. I, I got hundreds, hundreds of emails. Nacho, like I can't even, my inbox was crazy with just people yeah. saying nice things about how I'd helped them in their career. And um, and to be honest, right, that, that day, the day I left was dark. Like I yeah, was- Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you know, I was just heartbroken and infuriated and frustrated and felt like I had wasted 17 years of my life in this, trying to build this company that, that never had a financial exit. And, you know, was, was the growth was sort of plateauing and just infuriatingly frustrating. Um, really. Well, you were still having a growth rate that most like traditional businesses would be really happy with. Sure. Yeah. Right? Tra it, traditional, that... but not venture backed. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, so and it's interesting. Yeah, and, sorry, and sorry. then the next day, right? The next day when I, 
you know, when I opened my inbox, like I, I remember I was just, I, I had tears. Like I had tears coming down my, my cheeks as I was just reading through my inbox and was like, oh my God, I can't. It will take, it took me three days, four days of all email to just reply to all the people who had reached out and just been kind, yeah, but right? I, I got to say, man, like, uh, like, so people know as well, like, um, I wrote you to do this podcast, right? We haven't met before. Uh, and I just sent you this email being like, hey, this is what I want to do. You replied like in hours and you were like, cool, I'll do it. That was really cool for me because I've been reading your material for a while and I really respect the way you you put yourself out there. But then you do wonder like, okay, let's see if if actually like he will actually just reply to me and be yeah. like, okay, let's do it, right? Or he will be like, no, nah, this is not a big podcast. And you just went ahead and did it, right? And I, I think that that speaks really loud for, for what, you know, uh, you put your money where your mouth is sort of situation. I think you, you're really, you know, kind of like telling people how to do. What's, what's crazy to me is that even though you've been putting this out there for ages, I don't see more of it, mm-hmm. right? I think this is also my little attempt to, to get some of that more going with yeah. this podcast, right? Like to a little, my little grain of sand there. Uh, because it's still the norm to just like bullshit your way into looking amazing. Like that's yeah. still the norm. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's still people not open up. And I think a lot of people are fearful of how their careers look. Like I need to look like I'm amazing and I'm going to get hired if I'm amazing. So if I'm putting myself out there, like I make mistakes, I cannot afford it. Rand can afford it because, okay, been there, done that. He's in a different stage of life, but I can't. Yeah. And I don't really think that's true. I think you can at all times say like, I don't have any clue what I'm doing and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 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 No, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. There's, um, a, uh, a frustrating and, and I think unfortunately growing sort of trend in a bunch of subcultures around, uh, projecting success over, um, over being transparent and vulnerable. And, uh, that, is not, I don't think that's healthy, right? I don't think we need to do no. that. I don't think we should encourage that. Um, stop clicking likes on your friends' Instagram posts that are doing that shit, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, uh, don't encourage that, right? En- encourage and reward vulnerability, right? When people share the, the real stuff that's going on with them, when they are frank and honest about their um, failures, yeah. I, think, I think that's a wonderful thing, right? Absolutely. You mentioned one of the other things you mentioned in the book is how businesses inherit their founder, their founders attributes. Right. And uh, obviously with those come the founders flaws. Right. And you also mentioned how how Moz inherited some of yours Uh, today. Do you think after all the experience you've had, um, how are you trying to prevent this from happening at SparkToro, right? Because let's be honest, when you look at mistakes in hindsight, as we were saying before, it's like, yeah, I'm never going to make that mistake again. But yeah. when you're in the role and when you're in the middle of the whole thing, it's not that obvious, right? No. So no, it's not. How, how are you feeling about that the second time around? Yeah, I think part of that um, is an acceptance that your, your flaws will... Um, unavoidably. Be, yeah, will yeah. unavoidably be, be part of what you built, right? And, yeah. and there are ways to help with that, right? You can, you can try and avoid facing the problems that you know you're bad at. Right. So, you know, whatever we we, we talked about the accounting example or my example of like people in politics issues Um, or you can bolster it with with uh, people who join you on the journey. Right. So I am not technical. 
Um, but Casey, my co-founder, is extremely technical, right? And he's sort of, he's a full stack across the board, um, back end and front. And so, yeah, it's it's been really wonderful working with him, right? Because he's he sort of, whatever, you take care of all the marketing stuff, all the branding, all the product stuff, like, you know, yeah. all the people stuff, all the contractor management, conversion rate optimization, like all that stuff, writing everything. I'll make sure that this this product works really well and fast and smoothly and yeah i mean today is our our first and only downtime <laughs> that we yeah. that we've had in the company's history so that's nice yeah we were talking a little bit before before the recording and also like well and, and there's an unavoidable i mean pain that we have to discuss here i didn't want to go too deep on it because i think it's not your fault it's just basically we're all screwed in this situation and it's a global pandemic right so yeah. right now the crisis it's uh unthinkable in magnitude. Nobody thought it was going to get that big. And you, I, if I remember correctly, I got the email. Uh, so let, let me re rewind a little bit. So you launched Moss in 2004. You raised funds right before the 2008 crisis, right? So yeah. in, in 2007. Uh, and on the day that you were launching, actually, there was the, the clash of like Lehman Brothers, if yeah. I get this correctly. Then fast forward to March 2020. Spark Toro is launching now in the middle of a global <laughs> pandemic. So you have great timing for this shit. I can tell I you. Know, I know, I know. I need to make sure I don't launch any more companies because I, I clearly every time I do, it just brings the world uh, down. It's good. But but the first one, if I get if I got this right. So first of all, I got the email in March 10th because I was on the waiting list to use Spark Toro. And I got the yeah. email, I think, on March 10th. And I haven't been back in the office since March 13th. Yeah. Right. So wow. this was right after. Right. Um from what's in the book, you mentioned that you kind of served through the 2008 one, right? Yeah, we're in a good spot. Yeah. How, how, how is, tell me a little bit more about how you lived the 2008 one and how is it, did you learn anything that you can apply into 2020 or was it so good for you that it wasn't even a crisis and now this is actually your first one as a founder? Um, I mean, in, so with the 2008 uh, financial crisis, I think that we, we missed it or, or we surfed through it for, for two big reasons, right? One was we were small enough at the time that the adoption of our product was much, uh, whatever that growth rate was, we, yeah. we didn't know what it was going to look like without the financial crisis, right? So we, we sort of surfed through it because we were unaware. Um, and also, we benefited from the fact that a ton of businesses we're still getting online, trying to figure out online uh, advertising and marketing, trying to figure out how to ch switch their budgets from high cost of acquisition to low cost of acquisition. And SEO was growing like a weed, right? So, you know, that, that period from probably 2005 until I would say uh, 2018 or so, that was like the, the massive uh, growth for SEO. And, um, and actually, probably those last five, six years, uh, even more so than the, than the first five. So that helped us a lot. With SparkToro and the pandemic, we had some data. So you were in, I think you were in the third, second or third of about, or something. Yeah, yeah. of about eight batches that we sent from the end of February until the beginning of April, right, for the early access group. And then we did the public launch April 22nd. Yeah. And during that time, Nacho, we saw conversion rates go from about four and a half, five percent in the first batch uh, to 0.4% in the last right. batch, right? And and each time, the, my, my email was the reply to email on there, right? So you got the email directly from me. Yeah, yeah. 
And so the bounces came back to me as well, which meant that every week I was seeing more and more bounces that didn't say so-and-so is out of the office. They said, so-and-so is no longer with the company. This email oh, account God. has been closed, right? And so just hundreds of layoffs that were happening over the course of this. And then people emailing and being like, oh, you know, I really love what you're doing with Spartoro, but we no longer have, I no longer have a corporate credit card. So I, I have yeah. to get approval through finance. I, I'm not, we're not allowed to spend anything this year. Like no new tools, right? Yeah, um, I know that one. Yeah. All, uh, we're, unfortunately, we have to dial back on our subscription so I can't invest. Oh, shit, right? We really, so, we really this is, felt this one much more strongly. Okay, but this is an interesting point you mentioned because one of the common things that I think every marketer has been experiencing, unless you're in, I don't know, in one of those companies that are thriving at this, which is very few, right? Yeah. Uh, most marketing managers have gotten an email from their CFO or their finance person saying, well, where can we trim some fat? Right, like, what are you guys using that you don't truly? Because marketers are famous for buying a shitload of tools, so yeah. you're like, okay, which are the ones that you actually really, really need to do your job, and which ones are the ones you can let go of? Yeah, and this is a situation where nice to haves, right, or must haves are, you know, nice to haves are really struggling, and must haves are thriving. You're not going to change your CRM all of a sudden. You're not going to change these kind of things. You will very easily let go of some other tools. So. Um, how have you faced this challenge this time yeah. around? Because you were, first of all, I, I love SparkToro. I've been using it. And, oh, cool. uh, and I, think, I think it's really cool. I like it. But I'm one of those people that are like, I'm not going to spend a penny more this quarter yeah. in anything else. And SparkToro right? so, is a nice to have, right? It's not a, it's not a I have to have it to run my so business. So that was my question, yeah. right? How, how, how do you see it? And do you, is it your goal that at some point marketers see it as a must have? Hmm. And you think you can get it there? Or you're okay with being a nice to have and that's fine? Yeah, I think I would fall more in the second bucket than the first, right? So right. It, I, I think I think of SparkToro as, hey, this is some remarkable data that can save you a tremendous amount of time and make you a lot smarter about your marketing strategy and tactical decisions and where to put your budget. But it is not a um, it's not a core operating system for a marketing team yep. or an agency. It is a um, Gosh, it's it's a it's a data superpower that can add on uh, to your efforts rather than something that you absolutely need to function. And what's interesting about that is I think that is um, I think those sorts of tools um, and those sorts of, of data sources can have a bright future, a long term future, a profitable future. But they're going to be hit hard when there's economic downturns. And we yeah, we just have to be OK with that. And we are OK with that. Right. We're, we're sort of yeah, in I mean, this world of. As the economy recovers, as people put money back into marketing, SparkToro will be useful for them, right? When they try and figure out where to allocate their budgets, hey, they, if they're not using SparkToro, they're going to get get their asses kicked by people who are, right? Because this data is not available yeah. other places. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, no, but I think your situation goes. right now, it's um, you, you can in a way, afford those luxuries, right? Like yes. in a way that you can live with that. And, and that's okay. I, you also mentioned that one of your pains right now, which is related to the crisis, was pricing, yeah. right? And pricing, dude, it's, it's one of those things that everybody set, thinks that is easy and that everybody can do. And it's so goddamn difficult. And, yeah. it, and it's something that you really need to be a super expert on it to really nail it. How, if you're not, you know? you're mostly guessing around. Yeah, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. you can have some data. How do you data, know if you're doing it right? That's nah, no, no, no. I, I've sat in meetings so many with like different businesses where you just go like, well, nah, that's too cheap. Yeah, 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 that's too cheap. 
Like, how the hell do you know? Like, we, we have no fucking clue. It's a conversation of people just sitting together and being like, yeah, yeah, I would, yeah, yeah, I would pay that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's so fucking difficult, right? It's so difficult. And one of the things that, that grabbed my attention was that in Spark Toro, you have this model that is like a seven day pass. Yeah. And I thought it was really clever, right? Because basically it, you acknowledge the fact that some people may be like, I want to use the shit out of it for seven days. Right. I want to screenshot every search that I do. And I just want to get all those, those things saved for the, less, for the next six months. And right. then if I need it again, I'll pay again. But in any SaaS business where we all like kind of like praise the MRR God, right? <laughs> this, this, would, this would be unthinkable, right? right? If you go to any business that's trapped for cash or that is in a different situation and you'll say like, well, why not make it a seven day pass? Yeah, that's, that's how you get fired. So <laughs> how, how did you decide to get to this, uh, to this model? I thought it was really interesting. Well, basically because you can afford it, right? Why not? A, we can afford it. And B, we talk to a lot of our customers um, you know, before we even launched. And a lot of them are agencies and consultants who yeah. want to charge their clients directly for the thing, uh, the tools that they use, right? So if, you know, um, whatever, Airbnb hires, you know, Seer Interactive to do some work for them. Um, gotcha. Seer wants to be like, oh yeah, during this work, we did a bunch of market research and audience intelligence. Here's the data on that. Here's our presentation. This is why we're recommending, you know, these sorts of channels and sources. This is why we want to do these campaigns, blah, 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 blah. And that's $450 that we paid out of pocket for a week of access to SparkToro. We've had two agencies already sign up for the one week package twice, right? Yeah. In the first two months, that's... yeah. That's more, you know, that's great Eventually revenue for even, us. Eventually, even paying more than the membership would have right. been, right? Right. So, yeah. Because they're just charging their clients for it, right? Which, which yeah, I think is a, really There's reasonable. an appreciation as well. There's an appreciation of saying, well, you guys fit what we need. And exactly. I'll reward you for that. Exactly. Right? And exactly. I, I, I'm actually not strapped for cash. I could pay the membership. But I, what I want is this. Yeah, and I'm even well, willing to pay two times that one in a month. That is more expensive than the membership. I mean, I think the way that they, one of the agencies, I talked to them directly, right? And they, what they told me is usually we have someone on our team doing this research work, right? Trying to figure out all these channels and sources. Uh, and we spend, right? We, we have that person do two weeks of their job, you know, yeah. 40 hours a week is that research to assemble it. So now they can do it in 35 minutes with you. 450 bucks is, <laughs> that's a no-brainer. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in terms of, of pricing, have you been doing a lot of iteration for that one? Or did you just kind of like get started with the one you have and that's it for now? We got started with the one we have. I, I, Casey and I have talked about this. I think, to be honest, if we knew that the pandemic was going to hit as hard as it did and, and the, the economy would be as hard, hard hit as it was, we would probably have changed the pricing before launch. But, yeah, you know, at, right now we're we're in the process of figuring out whether we should mix it up and change it up for the future, and um, we'll see. And in terms of myths, because you know, I, I feel like when when you talk about pricing, my my initial idea, like being you know, uh, over filled with this whole like tech idea of like people being really smart, 
it's that you guys would have figured out pricing with some really advanced shit, right? Because you, you have you have Casey, right? And, and, and you have yourself and like, wow, two, two SEO gurus crawling the web and stuff. I would imagine you have this AI-driven, amazing pricing model bot that's nope. telling you how much the, to the price The pricing it. model is this. You know, lick the finger, put it in the wind. <laughs> All right, that seems right. Yeah. yeah but th- I think that's a great learning, man, because I think so many teams are like... For example, one of the people that can probably do this really well is, is Patrick from ProfitWell, which yeah. you also did an interview with, like probably one of the few people that can do this in such an academic way, right? And um, and you would imagine, like, just by looking at what he puts out, that all of you guys do that, right? Like, like Moss will do that, SparkToro would do that, everybody's doing this kind of high advanced pricing. Right. And then the little startups like us kind of, like, struggle to, like, match and we were like, yeah, but we have to look at data. It's like, dude, if like if these guys even don't have the right data to make these decisions, where are we gonna get that data from? You know? So it's it's I don't know. I think it's a good concept to to ground because a lot of people might feel like you're doing this super advanced stuff when it comes to your pricing. Yeah. Yeah. No, we are um not doing super advanced stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I think over time, right, it's one of those things where you you have to learn. And um yeah, we're actually we're using profit well, right? So we're trying to see what's going on and and uh, learn from that, but yeah. Okay, and circling back to our last pain of the day, because it's, it's already, time is going quickly. Um, it's building a product in an undefined space. And you touch upon this briefly and I tried to pull you out because I wanted to bring you back now. So uh, you're in essence a search engine marketer, right? So I can imagine, sort of, right? So I can imagine that before you even went with SparkToro, that was your first instinct. You went and, and got all the keyword planning, all the kind of things and kind of figure. That's what I would envision, right? No. Um, and, but you still decided to go for it. In the yeah. book, you yeah. say, for example, that one of the main reasons you, success, you succeeded with, with Moz was that the industry was already kind of spiking and there mm-hmm. was nobody there providing the solutions, right? right. So you could see the, the interest increasing, increasing, increasing. And then here you go, like taking all the secrets off of Google and giving them to the people. Right. Uh, in this one, it was, it was very different. So, in a way, you're kind of breaking your own rule there. Yeah. Why did you decide to go the same, uh, regardless of that rule? Yeah. I mean, in this case, it was this is a problem I think that marketers have had for I don't know a century. Yeah. Right. For forever, they've always been, marketers always have had to do tremendous amounts of work to figure out what their audiences pay attention to and um, how they interact and engage offline or online. Uh, and the world of market research, which is essentially just surveys, <laughs> um, right? Surveys and interviews. I, 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 we felt that that data, that space, um, had huge opportunities that the web presented, right? Because people's behavior is publicly crawlable um, and accessible. We saw some really smart companies doing this, and we thought, okay, we can we can do that for everyone. We can democratize that data, um, and that is a that's an exciting company, right? That's an exciting sort of thing to be able to offer. Uh, let's, I think, very frankly, we just wanted to see whether there was a, a real market there, and so I did a lot yeah. of survey. You know, I did a lot of interviewing. I did, did some surveys. I talked to a ton of people. And found that many, many folks, despite not being able to describe this problem with a word or two, had the problem. And so this is, you know, a lot like the very early days of SEO. I think we're defining the market. We're trying to to give it a name, right? Audience intelligence. We're trying to 
um, serve that market with the, the first tool of its kind or the only tool of its kind. Uh, and hey, uh, this is, you know, this is where high risk startups uh, come from. And we we're look, uh, we're, we're not following the playbook in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think we have the freedom and flexibility to do that, right? SparkToro, the exactly. reason we raised money the way we did, the reason we structured the company the way we did is because it allows us to be successful whether we are a million dollars in MRR or 10 or 20 or 50 or 100, right? Those yeah. are all successful numbers. At Moz, 1, 5, 10, 50 were all failures. Yeah, yeah. Right? So... <laughs> And but I think coming back to something we discussed earlier, like you, you did have an advantage on this one in terms of your reputation, in terms of your follower base, right? And you're selling still to the same audience and it's an audience you've captivated for, for ages. Do you think you would have stayed, like still taken the leap if, if that wasn't the case? If, if you didn't have that kind of like head start? Uh, so I think I might've expanded more broadly the ideas I considered for a startup if I didn't have a big following in one particular space. Like I wanted to use as leverage the advantages that I had from coming out of Moz, right? Which is I am reasonably well-known in the marketing world. I think, yeah. you know, the, the reality is the easiest thing for me to do would have been to build another SEO software type of company, right? Yeah. Like, oh, let, let's build something on analytics. Let's build something in keyword research. Let's build something in on-page optimization, whatever, right? And I had some ideas in that world, but um, I dis yeah, distinctly decided that I wanted to try something else, break out of SEO. Uh, and so I, I think um, I think this is a good sort of middle ground between those two. Okay, man. Uh, the last few minutes of this podcast, I want to use them to share a few resources, both from your side and mine. So cool. this is my last question. Uh, in Lost and Founder, your book, which I highly recommend, I think it's a great book, uh, do you, you compare starting a business in the very few, few first pages, uh, like playing a video game for the first time, right? Yeah. And you say clearly that the first time that you're playing a video game, you'll suck. If you're me, you'll probably suck for 10 years because I'm not really good <laughs> at video games. But in, in this case, uh, and you, I mean, I believe that even though you learn from experiences and that's really valuable, those mistakes are very evident in retrospect, but they're not evident as you're going. Right, so I think saying something like "I'm not going to make these mistakes again because I've already made them," yeah. I think there's a certain truth in that, but not fully true. So my question is: Do you feel like you finally got to a stage where, if Moss, if SparkToro keeps growing, right? I know you don't want to grow it to you know 100 people, but maybe to 50. Yeah. Do you feel like you're completely going to be free of those mistakes, or you might come back again in a few of those? I, I'm I'm certain, right? I think that we have. We have pathways we walk because of who we are. And yeah. some of that is malleable and some of it is not. Um, <laughs> and, and what happens as you get older is you grow to accept yourself, you know, warts and all. Um, and I think that part of, part of the reality is I will be better able to see those mistakes. I'll be able to see them faster. I'll be able to avoid some of them. I'll be able to make hopefully fewer of them. And when I do make them, I'll be able to forgive myself. Yeah. Right? I'll be able to, to recognize, hey, yeah, this is this is kind of how well, I am. Yeah. You know, this is yeah. this is this is I always mess this up. Like I know I mess this up. All right, well, let's just let's just be okay with that. 
this is not my strength. Let me bolster it. Let me see if I can find some people to help or let me work around it or let me just be okay with the mistake. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think because you've been so honest in putting all of this out, right? Like if that happens again, people will give you less shit about it because at yeah. the same time you've been so honest and you'll be like, this is me, man. And it, it's not, it's what not, I do. what's funny is you think it's people giving you shit, but really it's you. Yeah. Right. Really, it's you giving you shit. That's that. That's what really hurts. That's what drags you down. Right. I, um, you know, th- today. Right. I, I mentioned that we the, we we put up this blog post last night about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Right. And today, there people in my LinkedIn, people on Facebook, people on Twitter are being really shitty. Right. They're they're being yeah, well. like really. Yeah, they, they can white people never underestimate suck, them, right? Never underestimate. right? And like, and people are being shitty, but but I'm not. I don't take that to heart at all, right? That criticism bounces right off me because I don't, I don't think we did the wrong thing, right? I believe that it was the right thing. the The challenge I think that folks have, entrepreneurs especially, is is not when other people are giving you a hard time; it's when you're giving yourself a hard time. A hundred percent, right? That's the that's what breaks you. And this is just to wrap it up for the resources, but also people could say, well, it might be easier to not give yourself a hard time when you actually make it, right? Yeah. How, 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 how do you, because that's one thing, right? Like when you hear somebody like Bill Gates telling you like, hey, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, well, it's when you're sitting where you're sitting, it's not that hard to recognize them, right? I know it's, it's a difference in, in like magnitude, but what would be like your advice for those people that might have to deal with the fact that, you know, you might be, ah, me even, right? Like in my late 30s and I don't really have the dream of like being the next Elon Musk anymore, right? Like what's your advice for those people? I mean, I don't think that should be your model, right? So yeah. let me let me put it very frankly. The world needs far fewer Bill Gateses and Elon Musks. <laughs> like that's not what we want, right? If we want to build societies that are fair and equitable, that, that give lots of people opportunity, we don't want a few behemoth monopolies, Right. Yep. We want tons and tons of small and medium businesses and lots of competition. And that, that's Absolutely. not politics. That's economics and like society goodness. Right. And yeah. um, and as a result of that, what 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 falls out from that is we should be idolizing people who build small and medium, successful, long term, profitable businesses that they enjoy working at, that serve their customers well, that serve their uh, their their oh, community man. well, that serve their employees well. That's Amen. what we should idolize. But we don't even know those people's names. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. We don't talk about them. We talk about Elon and Bill. We talk about yeah. Jeff Bezos, right? We talk about, um, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, Brian from Airbnb or, or, or uh, Uber, right? Like, yeah. and, and that, we should, we should stop that, right? So that, yeah. that's on us to start to we identify also different heroes. Absolutely. Okay, man. Let's get to the resources. Do you have some goodies you want to share with us? Either a book, something to watch, or something that's been on your mind lately? Yeah. So we've been talking. We talked a lot about you know people and and people management and um, the psychology of that, the challenges of that. I, please, I will say, please don't say the same book I have for myself because yeah, otherwise I have nothing else. Oh no, it's, it's not this one, is it? Hold on. Oh, it's not that one, Glenn. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. So Go this this Go book that I'm holding up <laughs> is called No Hard Feelings. It's from uh, Liz Fossling and Molly Westuffy. And I think it is the best book I have ever read about working with people, working for people, um, working to manage people. Just just a gem of a book. And following them on Twitter is also amazing. They're, um, I, I think uh, one of them is an illustrator and does great cartoons and the, the content is just awesome. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. I wish I'd read it 
years before I started my business. Perfect. Uh, I'll definitely put the link out when we put this out in different places as well. Yeah. What uh, else do you have see, in there? The other, um, yeah, the other uh, uh, recommendation that I've got is um, if folks have not read it, there's a book called Small Giants. And I, um, I love that book. I love the philosophy behind it. It's, it's basically what we've been talking about uh, As just a small now. person, I think that's going to really resonate with me. As, as yeah, a right. It's like these, these small, profitable, successful companies that are kind of quietly amazing in their fields. Um, that's great. And I, that, that's what I aim to be. Cool, man. I have a couple of recommendations. One of them is called, it's a book as well. It's called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. It's by Rishad Tobakawala. I'm sorry, Rishad, if I just butcher your name, but I think that's the way you pronounce it. The chief growth officer or former chief growth officer, I think, at Publicis Group. Uh, super interesting book, uh, especially because it comes from somebody from a larger corporate environment. Yeah. And to have somebody like that telling you to stay human instead of like just look at PDF reports all day, it's super refreshing, super interesting. And the other one for the people struggling with pricing, which includes me and probably will keep including me for ages to come, I think the ebook that Patrick from, uh, from Price Intelligently at the time and, and Profit Well put out called The Anatomy of SaaS Pricing Strategy is really, really interesting. Mm. It's really in-depth. And it can help us go a little bit less like finger in the air uh, when we're trying to figure out pricing. We're still going to end up doing that because that's what we do. But yeah, besides that, I think that's good. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I would have talked to you for hours. I really appreciate you being here. I think it, it really shows that you really do as you say. Uh, yeah, and thank you so much for joining me. It's been great. Awesome to be here, Nacho. And uh, please let me know how I can ever be helpful. All right, man. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Take care.